Thank you for joining us for the Detroit Evening Report Weekends, where, unlike DER during the week, where we focus on the news of the day, on the weekends we spend some time with the people and places that make Detroit special. And joining us today is Nargis Rahman. Hey, Nargis. Hi, Sasha. And you're bringing us a really cool story today. Tell us about it. So today we're listening to a story about the Muslim foster care scene in Michigan, and it's focusing on some of the things that we might not think about when we're thinking of foster kids going into the foster care system, and we're focusing on what are the challenges of being Muslim and navigating the system. Fabulous. Well, that sounds like a really interesting and important story. So let's listen. When she was 13 years old, Najla Al-Mayali entered the foster care system when her parents divorced. She and her three sisters were separated. Now, 20 years old, she lived in seven foster homes, five of which were not Muslim. There was no halal food. There was no going to the masjid on Friday. There was no salah, no what I was used to. Al-Mayali says she felt that her non-Muslim foster parents didn't care about her religion. Food was not prepared a certain way. She didn't go to the mosque for the traditional prayer. She wasn't comfortable wearing hijab to cover her hair. I felt like I was at home. About 240,000 Muslims live in Michigan. Jessica Sweet, who recruits foster parents for the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, says the state doesn't collect religious information. However, she says many Muslim kids in foster care end up in non-Muslim homes. Right now, it really is based on the anecdotal information that we're getting, reaching out to county offices and having them hand count this information and send it to us. Samina Zahur became a foster parent in 2012 after learning about the need from a sermon at her local mosque. Her friend, lifelong educator, Rania Shabib, became licensed in 2015. Shabib says they realized many people were not aware there was a need for Muslim foster parents, so they created the Muslim Foster Care Association. There were some gaps within the foster care system and the Muslim community. And with my fostering experience, I knew that with the insight that I had as a foster parent, Samina and I could work to bridge those gaps. Shabib says there are only about 10 licensed Muslim foster care homes in the state, while her organization serves more than 200 Muslim foster care kids every year. Its work expanded quickly from making holiday Eid baskets and care packages at the end of Ramadan to working with federal and state agencies to do a better job of placing Muslim children. It was sort of like a grassroots. We would um, do these panel discussions, we'd go to different communities, and then people started saying, well, where can we find out more information? Last November, about 300 current and potential foster parents gathered to learn more. Lena Mossed, the association's domestic foster care program coordinator, says the fundraiser was also held to help break the stigma surrounding foster care. Still, she says, persuading Muslim families to become licensed foster care homes is a challenge because the system can be intrusive. I mean, foster children are always under the watch. Caregivers are always in and out of the home, therapists, licensing workers. And it's very hard for the foster family to adjust to that lifestyle. The state does work with the association to train staff and families, regardless of their background. But Shabib says Muslims can step up to do more. 
There's so much to talk about in this area of foster care. And in Islam, it's part of our faith tradition, but unfortunately it's not something that we're at the forefront of. And we want the Muslim community to be at the forefront of foster care. And she encourages more Muslims to take the first step by volunteering or becoming a mentor to Muslim children. I'm Nargis Rahman, WDT News. That was Nargis Rahman and your story about Muslim children in the Michigan foster care system that you produced for National Public Radio for NPR. So this was a a national story. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It's a very good story. Really interesting topic. Tell me how this came to you. So I heard about this problem, I would say at least a decade ago, that there was this push to get more Muslim parents licensed in foster care. However, over the years, a lot of people were very hesitant to do that because I feel like there's still a lot of stigma around foster care um, parenting. And also, there's a lack of awareness that there is a problem. And so the founders that created the Muslim Foster Care Association have been working to break those um, barriers of stigma, but also recognize that people might want to help out in other ways. So right now, there's only about 10 foster care families that are taking in about 200 Muslim kids in the system. And one of those things that we couldn't include in the story was that in 2021, there was 200 Afghan unaccompanied minors that came to the U.S. and in Michigan. And so this association all of a sudden had to scramble to make uh, accommodations for those children. And that's when they realized even more that people really need to step up and they're trying to do more um more awareness campaigns and just bring people together and let them know that it's not only about local kids, but there's also international kids coming to Michigan specifically. And, you know, people need to pay attention and do something about it. The other thing is in the Islamic tradition, there is an emphasis on taking care of orphans and taking care of others. But it's not always clear how to do that. So in a lot of different countries, there are orphanages set up for kids who might not have someone to take care of them. But typically, the kids would go to their relatives, which is also the same in the United States. However, when there isn't any relatives to take care of them, people are not really sure how to step in and help and how to go about that. And then something that Mona Mossaid mentioned in the interview is that People are afraid of the intrusive system. So it's not that they don't want to help and they don't want to be there for these kids. They just don't want to deal with all the bureaucracy that comes with the foster care system. So those are just some things that have to be worked out in the long term. When we think about foster care across cultures, I think, um, we tend to think of it as a system that's responding to parents who are in certain situations, like maybe parents who are on drugs or parents who are in jail or, you know, and so I think for many people, uh, it, it seems like um, a situation that's very separate from our own lives. And I imagine when you also include uh, traditions of of family care, intergenerational care that come especially from um, people from immigrant communities, it must be surprising to, to think that there are so many Muslim children in the Michigan foster care system. 
Yeah, some of the things that I discovered during reporting on the story is that sometimes people are losing their children temporarily because they're just not aware of the systems. So when they come to America, they're not really aware of how to discipline their kids or, you know, how to keep up with them. So it's just a learning curve and there is no one to really show them around. And sometimes they just lose their children in that sense. The other thing is the parents that I spoke to said the goal of foster care is to reunite the kids with their parents if they have parents around. So, of course, in the in the instance of unaccompanied minors, that's not necessarily something that is, is uh, possible, but those children would be eventually um, prepared for independent living. But in the case of foster care kids, the goal is not to necessarily adopt those children per se. It is to revive some sort of normal for them and be there for them. And the Muslim parents that I spoke to also said that they, after they would foster these children, and a lot of them foster the same children, like in rotation, they said that they stayed in touch with the kids and their families, and they wanted to be a support system for the entire family. So they recognized that it wasn't just a temporary fix but they knew that they had to stick together and pull them up so it wouldn't happen again. And something about um, – it's like that element of family. So they would t- – in a, in a way, they would kind of adopt the family and then take care of the whole family and figure out how they could be supportive and make sure that they're on the right track so they don't fall prey to the system again. And so some of these kids – they uh, end up in independent living or they get reunited with their family, but they're in a little bit of a better circumstance. And these families periodically check in with them, the parents, and make sure that they're okay. So when we talk about fostering Muslim children, it's not just a question of finding placements, but this is a question of... um, and not just cultural, culture is important, but it's not just cultural accommodations, but religious accommodations. Can you talk a little bit more about what it might mean for a child to be fostered, you know, have a home, have a place where they can go, but that place does not accommodate their religion? So there are a lot of non-Muslim parents that are willing to and successfully able to take care of Muslim children and foster them. And some of the things that Muslim children are looking for, and just a note is that a lot of times the way that people even know that there's Muslim kids in that foster care home is because the kid is old enough to say, like, hey, I need something else besides pork to eat. Or, hey, I need a place to go pray. You know, I want to be with a Muslim community. And so when they express those things, that's when it's even flagged. Because right now, Michigan doesn't have a system of collecting religious background information. So if a kid is, let's say, five and younger, they're not necessarily going to know that kid is Muslim and needs accommodations in the first place. So this concern is coming up more as the kids are older, like teenagers and things like that. And so some of the ways that people are accommodating, one of the ways is that MFCA is training non-Muslim parents so they can request to set up a one-on-one educational session, really, where the person, a person from their team will come to your house and kind of show you the basics. Like, hey, they, this child needs a clean space to pray, and here's a prayer rug, here's a scarf if, a, if it's a girl, here's a Quran for the kid to read if they want to, and here's some information on where the local Muslim community is in this city. So that child, if they want to go explore and they want to be with their community, they have somewhere to go. 
And so the non-Muslim families can accommodate things like that. And they can also request help. Like, for example, they can request halal food because there are funds set aside to provide halal meat. Some of the kids shared that they had, hadn't eaten any meat for a month at a time when they were in foster care homes that didn't understand these kind of unique needs. And on the opposite spectrum, sometimes children will, told me that um, they didn't eat at all if they didn't have an alternative to eat. And sometimes they would eat like salads or vegetarian options if that was even available in the first place. Hmm. So the the Muslim Foster Care Association was created specifically to um, acknowledge this problem and provide some training and to provide supports for foster care families and foster children. Do you see any movement at the state level? What are they doing to change how they handle the placement of Muslim foster children? Well, right now they are anecdotally collecting information from different counties to determine where there are Muslim kids. But it's uh, they don't have a good system in place right now. They're, that's something that they're working on. But they are in close relation with Muslim Foster Care Association. And the association is trying to be proactive in the sense that saying, hey, anytime there's a Muslim kid, give us a call. We'll try to help you find a placement. Um, and they are not a placement agency, but they're really just like a middleman between those two things. And so they're trying to stay at the forefront of providing whatever help they can. As far as the state, one of the questions I asked Jessica Sweet is that, is there any funds set aside for children who need special accommodations in these homes? And she told me that it's there isn't a, a, a fund set aside per se in terms of like religious accommodations. However, there are there is money that is available per child that can be requested to fulfill some of these accommodations, which I don't think that foster care parents might necessarily know that they can request that. And then there are donations that they can get from the association because people are helping in terms of providing Qurans and prayer rugs and prayer uh, clothes, and they want to be able to help in those ways. So even though right now we have the, the problem of less Muslim foster parents, there are a lot of other ways that people are helping out. There was a a mention in the story about concerns that families might have about having essentially the government in their homes. And this, of course, is an issue particularly for the Muslim community and especially post 9-11. Can you talk a little bit about that concern? Well, some of the foster parents that I interviewed said they weren't sure what to expect in terms of getting licensed. And one particularly said that, you know, they even interview your kids to see, like, are you really a good parent? And she didn't know what to expect from that. Like, she didn't know what her kids were going to say. Sometimes those kind of things can, you know, nerve wreck people. But also nowadays, I think there's more systems in place for people to give you a heads up on what to expect. So before this licensing process, you know, people... There are people that enough people who can say this is what they will do during the licensing process. This is how to prepare. This is how big your house has to be. This is how many rooms you have to have in your home and things like that. So they have an idea. And some of the other things that people can do for placements is they can pick and choose if they want to have if they if they say, for example, have all girls, they can say, I only want girl placements or if they only want a certain age group that because they prefer to take care of that age group or they're better equipped to take care of that age group and things like that. 
which is also misconceptions that people don't really understand. I think a lot of times people think that if the government places kids in your house, it's going to be any kid, whenever, however. But there is a little bit more that people do have in their control. Um, they just have to make those preferences known from the from the forefront. And, and the Muslim Foster Care Association also upon request can come into your community or the local mosque and do presentations that are geared toward any questions that people have. So they also open themselves up for that kind of training if needed. So why did you do the story now? One of the reasons I did the story is now is because in November, the association held their first fundraising banquet. And so they've been working kind of behind the scenes all this time and just trying to put all their ducks in a row and make sure that they have everything to move forward. And so because the association is expanding, they're able to come back and tell the community, here's where what we're doing great at and here's where we need more work to be done. And so one of the things they're focusing on this year is looking for more volunteers and mentors. There is a little bit of a vetting process even in that because you're still working with you know foster care children. But I think that it opens a door for people who want to help in a more limited way um, and still be able to make an impact in these children's lives. Hmm. It's so important for us to take the stories that we think we know and explore the parts of those stories that we haven't heard. So I really appreciate you doing this story and bringing this story to us here. Thank you. It was, it was quite an adventure to learn all about the things that are happening in the Muslim foster care scene. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see how this discussion expands going forward. So uh, maybe we'll just bother you about it again in the future. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) So thank you, Nargis, for joining us. Thank you for having me as usual. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us for the Detroit Evening Report Weekends, where we spend some time with the people and places and topics and issues that make Detroit special. If there's something happening in your neighborhood or there's someone or something you think we should know about, drop us a line at Detroit Evening Report at WDET.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you Monday. <laughs>